Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak, the free speech podcast brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights in education. Welcome back to So To Speak, the free speech podcast, where usually every other week we take an uncensored look at the world of free expression through personal stories and candid conversations. I am, as always, your host, Nico Perino. And this week, we've already brought you two, so to speak, episodes, and now I'm bringing you a third. And that's because this coming Monday, October 19th, the Hugh M. Hefner First Amendment Awards are taking place. And for First Amendment nerds, these are the Academy Awards, the Pulitzer Prize, the Nobel Prize. Whatever comparison you want to make, these are the biggest awards for First Amendment advocacy. And on today's show, I have the distinct pleasure of being joined by Christy Hefner to discuss the awards. Christy currently serves as president of the Hugh M. Hefner Foundation and chairman of the Hugh M. Hefner First Amendment Awards, which she launched in 1979. From 1988 to 2008, Christy was chairman and CEO of Playboy Enterprises, making her the longest-serving female CEO of a U.S. public company. For three years, she appeared on Forbes' 100 Most Powerful Women list. Christy, welcome onto the show. Thank you so much, Nico. It's a pleasure to join you. I want to start by talking a little bit about the history of the award. This is its 40th anniversary. The first awards were given in 1980. Why did you put these awards together? So this was in conjunction with Playboy Magazine's 25th anniversary. And I was asked to put together a plan for how to best celebrate that milestone. My feeling was that while throwing parties is always fun, more interesting might be to find some aspects of what made Playboy remarkable and highlight those during the year. So, for example, we launched the Playboy Jazz Festival, which had been done 20 years before as a fundraiser for the Urban League and then not done again, but after 1979 became an annual event. We started touring the Playboy Art Collection and published a book about the artists who contributed to Playboy. And given the strong tradition of the magazine editorializing on behalf of First Amendment freedoms and the work of the Playboy Foundation in giving grants to organizations like the ACLU, we came up with the idea of highlighting individuals whose efforts really protected and enhanced First Amendment and using that as a way to bring attention to contemporary aspects of the battle around the First Amendment. And that was really the genesis of the awards. So we announced that we would start them the following year. And also in that year, we purchased at auction some papers related to the trial of John Peter Zenger, which is often considered one of the first freedom of the press trials donated them to the Chicago Public Library, and for the year, toured them around the U.S. in partnership with other, usually newspaper companies, for these exhibits of historical documents related to First Amendment battles, had contests for high school students to talk about what do they think the First Amendment means today, and then culminated back in Washington, D.C., where we gave the first awards. And we've been doing it ever since. It's funny you should mention the trial of John Peter Zenger because 
Uh, one of the my first introductions to the First Amendment was in elementary school where our fifth grade teacher, Mr. Shields, had us put on a play of The Trial of John Peter's Anger, and I played one of the censors in that. But Wow! You know, yeah, no, it was a, it was an interesting experience. So I, I like to hear that, you know, that connection has a connection with the awards as well. Now, um, Hugh Hefner, your father, had a lifelong commitment to defending the First Amendment, and I know was close with Lenny Bruce, the comedian and uh, someone who I helped make a documentary about back in 2015 called "Can We Take a Joke?" You know, did. What was what was his experience in fights for First Amendment rights? I imagine you and your long tenure uh, as president of the Playboy Enterprises had battles of your own with the would-be censors. Uh, indeed. In fact, I recently, right before the pandemic shut down theaters, had the pleasure of seeing a one-man show uh, about Lenny Bruce uh, that Kitty, Lenny's daughter, had highly recommended as just a brilliant portrayal of her father that started off Broadway and then came to Chicago. And it just reminded me of how important it is to keep alive the historical understanding of the risks that people like Lenny took and the price they paid for standing up for the right to sort of speak truth to power. But in terms of uh, specific issues and battles that Heff and Playboy fought, um, I guess probably the early ones were before my involvement. I know that the post office challenged the right of the magazine to mail with the second class postal permit, which, as you can imagine, is essential for the you know affordability of magazines and newspapers to be delivered through the mail. And they challenged it on obscenity laws and the magazine won, but it you know, had to spend money and time in court to prevail. And then some years later, again, before my time, um, the Postmaster General took the magazine and my father to court over photographs of Jane Mansfield, which again, he won. Uh, in my time, I guess we had a couple of major cases, which really, we were the principal plaintiff in, but the principles we were fighting for were certainly broader. One was during the Reagan years and the Mies Commission, which was using the bully pulpit and the cozy relationship that really started in that period between the so-called moral majority or the Christian right and the federal government. Because really up to that point, even Republican presidents had been very respectful of the separation of church and state, and frankly, very respectful of the Bill of Rights. You know, Eisenhower was a card-carrying member of the ACLU. But in the 80s, that shifted in a profound way, and we're still paying the price for that shift. And one way it manifested itself were these show hearings around the harm associated with so-called pornography and obscenity which was used by the government to pressure retailers to stop selling magazines like Playboy and advertisers to stop advertising in them. So we took the Mies Commission to court all the way to the Supreme Court and won a really important case in terms of pushing back on exactly what that aspect of the First Amendment is all about, which is the government's ability to dictate what is acceptable speech. Then we had a second pretty important case 
in the early days of cable television that Bob Corn Revere, who I'm sure is known to many of your listeners, was our He's been on the show guy. many times, yeah. Yes, exactly. And that was based on uh, a law that Congress passed that attempted to apply broadcast standards to cable and satellite television. And our argument was that cable and satellite were not public airways and that indeed they should be afforded the same protections that the internet and print was afforded. And we fought a long and lonely battle all the way to the Supreme Court. In fact, it's the only time I've ever been inside the Supreme Court and I was there for our our final arguments. And we won that decision, which is frequently quoted from opinion in terms of establishing the standard for non-broadcast television as being comparable to internet and print. And then in a more niche area, but I thought really important. At one point, again, I think during the Reagan years, but I'd have to look that up, uh, Congress passed a bill that cut the funding for the Braille program of the Library of Congress by the exact amount of money that it cost to translate Playboy magazine into Braille with a very wow. clear signal to the to the librarian of congress that this should not continue. Now first of all I'll point out to your listeners what upon reflection will be obvious which is the braille edition of playboy is all text. There are no photographs. So on the face of it it's just preposterous. But it was done and the American Library Association and the American Congress for the Blind and the Librarian of Congress were just outraged. So we partnered with them to fund the suit to challenge the constitutionality of that action, and we prevailed. And the Supreme Court ruled that while, yes, Congress can set the budgets of these agencies, they cannot do it in a way that is other than speech neutral. So, so it sounds like you had a lot of run-ins with the law, but I'm looking here at the Playboy philosophy. The foundation was started in 1964, and on your website, you talk about one core component of the philosophy, and I'm going to read our listeners part of that. Progress necessarily requires the exchange of outdated ideas for new and better ones. By keeping open all lines of communication in our culture, every new idea no matter how seemingly perverse, improper, or peculiar, has its opportunity to be considered, to be challenged, and ultimately to be accepted or rejected by society as a whole or by some small part of it. This is the important advantage that a free society has over a totalitarian one. For in a free exchange of ideas, the best will ultimately win out. It seems as though that philosophy is not just concerned with the law, which uh, you and your father had to deal with often, but also with kind of the tolerance of a, of a society at large. Would you say that's true? Very much so. And I think it's a really important point, Nico, especially when we think about issues that are so central to concerns of fire, as well as of my father and the HMH Foundation, like free speech on campuses. So, you know, if we're not talking about a public university, there is no quote unquote First Amendment or legal basis on which to challenge private universities' restriction of speech, whether it's unpopular speakers being invited to um, come to campus or um, robust debate among students and faculty on campus. And yet, certainly, the reason why 
we've supported organizations like FIRE for so long. And indeed, one of our winners this year is someone who worked to end safe speech zones, not only on his campus in Kentucky, but in the, st- in the state of Kentucky, comes out of that very strong belief that the greatness of America is related to the right to protest for all of our rights. And that comes from the ability to speak freely. And that means being tolerant of diverse points of view. And as the ACLU would say, and of course, Ira Glasser is receiving our Lifetime Achievement Award, who was just a champion of this, that you know the purpose embedded in the First Amendment in terms of those values that you've just described is about offering protection to the speech we disagree with, even the speech that makes us uncomfortable, even the speech we despise. That's the zone that we are providing in that public square out of a belief that the best ideas will prevail. And as Dr. King has said, you know, the the arc is moving towards justice, even if it doesn't always seem like a straight line. But one of the reasons why that's true is that we have this robust democracy that allows for this robust exchange of ideas. I love earlier you were saying in America, we have the right to protest for right. That's a paraphrase I'm assuming from uh, Dr. Martin Luther King, yes. who during his final speech, um, the mount, the famous mountaintop speech that he gave in Memphis, Tennessee, uh, he was talking about the illegal injunctions in the South that prevented he and his other civil rights activists uh, from marching and, and rallying. He said, you know, if this were China or uh, North Korea, I might under, or Russia, I might understand uh, the denial of certain First Amendment privileges, uh, the right to freedom of a speech, the right to assemble. But he said, this is America, and in America, we have the right to protest for right. Uh, so these fights for freedom of speech go back uh, decades and you know, to, to his time as well. I want to talk a little bit now about the honorees. You mentioned Ira Glasser, who, of course, is the subject of documentary I co-directed, Mighty Ira. Which I uh, have to interrupt by saying is just beautiful and brilliant. And I have exchanged emails with Ira because I was on the board of the Illinois ACLU during Skokie and for actually a long time. And I I just commend you for uh, what a wonderful job you've done of both bringing forth the humanity of who Ira is, but also of telling the story. I, I appreciate that. Yeah. One of our goals was to, during this time, remind people of some of the history of these old school civil libertarians and why they took the First Amendment positions uh, that they took. I come from a younger generation. I'm 30 years old. And I, I feel as though some of my generation have shoot off this respect for neutral principles uh, in favor of more political expediency. And I worry about that cause. But it's also a call to those who might be skeptical of free speech. Uh, because they have heightened concerns around racial justice or anti-Semitism, and a reminder that those concerns are partners with the First Amendment and not antagonists. Yes, and and Ira was such an articulate champion of that, and I think the film, particularly with regard to racial justice and the First Amendment, but you could extend that to uh, as as you know as is said, you know, women's rights, gay rights, you know, all of the social justice movements were inextricably linked to and dependent on exercising those First Amendment rights. And I love his use of the phrase of the, you know, sort of the wind beneath our wings. 
Yeah, that that was John Lewis who said, yes. without the First Amendment or right to free speech, the civil rights movement would have been a bird without wings. Yeah. So, uh, you know, Ira is a very articulate spokesperson of that, and I, I think very deserving of your lifetime achievement award. It wasn't just his 23-year tenure as executive director of the ACLU, but his 10-year tenure before that at the NYCLU, and all he's done since uh, yes. has, has really spoken to a life in defense of core principles and, and other core concerns of civil libertarians, including uh, concerns about the racial consequences of the war on drugs. And, and a good example, which is something else we you know try to highlight where it makes sense through the awards, of someone who... Um, you know, did so at, at some personal cost, you know, um, Ira yeah. made, you know, some really strong enemies, including among the very people that should have been his allies for positions that he and the ACLU uh, took, uh, Skokie being one of them, but not the only one. And, you know, principles worth defending often are principles that you pay a price for defending and we, on behalf of all of the judges over these 40 years of the awards, are acutely aware of that and really respectful and appreciative of those sacrifices. So uh, you said you were on the board of Skokie when the yes. case, uh, the, the, the Illinois division of the ACLU in 1977 and 78. What was that experience like, I have to ask, now that you've brought it up? Yeah, it was searing. I mean... I think the film has some marvelous footage that really captures it, both in terms of documentary footage of interviews with the marchers, but also with the survivors and the genuine, deep, almost unfathomable pain that they were feeling. So it put into that crucible this principle that can seem abstract and academic, and it made it so painfully powerful as to are you willing to stand you know on the ramparts of this because you understand that if we cede to government the ability to decide who gets to speak whether it's in a march or uh, in the public square or whatever the danger of that outweighs the pain that this will cause and that there are better ways to respond to hateful speech and I will say my memory, and I would have to go back and look at press accounts to see if my memory is correct, is that very few people left the Illinois board over this, but very many people left the ACLU over it. We had a massive canceling of memberships within the Chicago, Illinois statue. Massive and a massive defunding of the ACLU. So whatever was happening at the national level was happening exponentially in Chicago and, and in Illinois. And indeed, one of the very first First Amendment awards went uh, that next year to David Goldberger, who was in your film. And while normally we don't give awards to people who are what we call doing their job, because we love that there are people who are doing that, but we don't think it serves the greater purpose of really illuminating the issues and the personal stories of people. If we're only giving the awards to the executive directors and general counsels and chairs of boards of the myriad of organizations that do great work around the First Amendment. But in the case of David, as your film uh, explicates, 
I mean, to say he paid a personal price doesn't begin to capture what he had to withstand to stand up for these principles. Yeah, including, you know, at his at his synagogue or his parents' synagogue being called out uh, by the membership for his defense of the yes. First Amendment Amendment in Skokie. And David was actually on the podcast uh, four weeks ago. I, Ira was our last guest and before him was David. So uh, listeners who are who missed that conversation can go back and check it out. So Ira is receiving your Lifetime Achievement Award. Yes. Those of our listeners who want to watch that film, it's MightyIra.com. It's available through Angelica Film Center right now. And then we'll be on your streaming platforms uh, next Friday on the 23rd of October. And uh, you I also highly personally recommend it. <laughs> and I appreciate it. Thank you. It's uh, It was a labor of love, but definitely a labor. It's something we worked on for, for three years that began as just kind of a short, maybe 13-minute documentary short turned into a feature 90-minute deal. So it was fun, and I learned a lot. Education is Michael Frazier, who you mentioned before, uh, who led a bipartisan group to support the Kentucky Campus Free Speech Protection Act, which eliminated free speech zones in the in the state of Kentucky. And it, it seems as though your foundation has long been concerned uh, with issues uh, relating to free speech on college campuses. Yes. And, and I suppose for people like me and, and uh, Bill Maher is, has done as a favor a uh, a special opening set of comments for the award ceremony. And without revealing too much, anyone who watches Bill knows that this is an issue that he cares about a great deal too, and, and is one of the issues he speaks about. So for those of us who are progressives, um, who grew up in an age in which most of the efforts we had to push back on with regard to freedom of expression, whether it was you know press or speech or assembly, was from the right. It's particularly distressing when it occurs in places like college campuses. And I think it's essential that people like the HMH Foundation, people like Bill, people like FIRE, really stand up forcefully and push back on this. And I think that there is this maybe failure of historical perspective around some younger people today, not all, but some in not appreciating what the free speech movement on campus was and what it was fighting for and why it's worth protecting and why the contemporary battles of speakers from the conservative side of the spectrum is also a battle worth standing on the side of the principles. So over the years, uh, Allison Stanger received an award who at Middlebury really was actually physically attacked as well as verbally attacked for um, trying to protect Charles Murray's right to speech. Um, you know, Greg has won an award with his co-author for the coddling of the American mind. You know, this year, uh, you know, Michael is receiving an award, which often we're particularly touched by people who do this kind of work, not in you know, a urban area of a blue state, but here in Michael's case in Kentucky. So we just think it's really important to provide encouragement and support and attention on those people and those organizations that are doing this work. And I was particularly proud to see that the University of Chicago was recognized at the top of FIRE's recent list of free speech survey of campuses Jeff Stone, who authored that kind of manifesto that's become the gold standard, 
received our award many years ago for his wonderful book, Free Speech in Perilous Times. And uh, it was nice to see the university recognized and at the same time distressing to see how many colleges and universities are still faring so poorly. Yeah, that was, I worked on that survey project. I was one of the managers of it. And uh, it was the largest ever survey of college students, 20,000 college students across the country at 55 colleges. And when we got the data back, uh, it was kind of a proof of concept for us that University of Chicago came in number one because we rated on five different variables, one of which was administrative support. And they were far and away, according to their students, the most supportive of free speech. And, um, you, you know, so it, 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 it was an important metric for us seeing them at the top there, although there was nothing we did to intentionally place them there. So it's it's right. it's more than just words. Their students are feeling it. Uh, that that expression is protected on that campus. Another another recipient of uh, award this year is in book publishing. Andrea Dennis and Eric Nielsen, um, who our listeners will be familiar with because I had them both on the podcast before you COVID. Just they... all over this, Nico. This is fantastic. I feel like <laughs> how do we not actually know each other? <laughs> I know, I know. Well, well, one of these days post COVID, we'll have to we'll have to actually finally meet in a non virtual oh, so environment. To that. Yeah. Well, I've been doing it for four and a half years, and. And the podcast is devoted solely to free speech issues. And so you're always looking for new and interesting people to talk to. And when their book, Rap on Trial, Race, Lyrics, and Guilt in America came out, uh, they it, they exposed to me something that I had no familiarity with, which was essentially the criminalization of rap lyrics in America. Um, so I urge our listeners who have missed that conversation to go back to earlier in the year, I believe I had a mom and an January or February pre-COVID, they came into Fire's offices in Washington, D.C. I, I encourage our listeners to go back and listen to that very fun and illuminating episode. I want to talk about the, the recipient in law, David E. McCraw. Who is- just underscore a point that you just made. Of course. Um, Nico, in that I personally and our judges, Cal Pope and Ted Boutros, had exactly the same reaction to the book. And it was a very competitive category this year. There were a lot of actually excellent books uh, written in response to different uh, First Amendment issues. But we were all so struck by the fact that this was so illuminating, this phenomenon that was going on of prosecutors, you know, latching onto this fictional reality of rap to use in prosecuting crimes and how widespread it was you know, how clearly differentiated it was from any other artistic expression. And so we just really loved the idea of reaching even a larger audience, as clearly you did when you interviewed them, with this really important uh, message that, as I say, was highly educational and illuminating for me personally. And and it's also a a shorter read. I think the book is less than 200 pages. Yeah. Uh, So anyone who, who wants to pick it up can probably finish it. Uh, in a couple of days, and I encourage. And our it, there's a killer so. forward from from Killer Mike. <laughs> killer forward from Killer Mike. Yeah, my uh, some one of my colleagues is a big fan of his music, and he also gave a great speech. I remembered uh, in Georgia in the wake of the George Floyd killing too. Um, that I remember being quite powerful. In the law category, Davey McCraw, who's deputy general counsel of the New York Times, he wrote a book, Truth in Our Times: Inside the Fight for Free Press or for press freedom in, a, in the age of alternative facts. Talk a little bit about uh, his selection as a ward. He, he was someone who uh, 
has been highlighted for fulfilling the public's right to know. And in, in, in your press release, you talk about the Chelsea Manny leaks to the Trump's tax returns. Uh, part of this makes me think a little bit about the concerns I have, and I, I know many of our listeners have because they are constantly writing me about it. But last night, we the, there was a big controversy surrounding Facebook and Twitter's uh, banning of stories about the Hunter Biden New York Post story. I don't, I'm not familiar with the story. I haven't read it. But there's a concern about you know, these social media companies also memory holding or preventing people from looking at at stories. And and Twitter justified it because it said that the information was gathered from unauthorized sources, that is, you know, um, someone leaking sources. And that makes me think, you know, well, you know, would, would Twitter also ban Chelsea Manning's leaks? Would they ban Trump's tax returns? What about the Pentagon Papers? Or is this one of those things where you're seeing political expediency outweigh the neutral principle is that the public has the right to know information, even if it's leaked. I don't know if you're familiar with that story because it just happened 12 hours ago, but yeah, uh, a little I, bit about David McCraw. Yeah. Um, I, I know only a little bit. I read the Columbia Journalism Review uh, daily feed and it had just a little bit about it. And it appears as if um, the underlying uh, evidence slash facts that are used to build the case have been found to be wanting to say the least. But um, I think the feeling about David was that he has really been at the epicenter of this penumbra of pressures on the free press aspect of the First Amendment. The New York Times has been in the crosshairs of the Trump administration's efforts to discredit the media, you know, calling them the enemy of the people, um, calling what is published that the administration doesn't like fake news. They've also been aggressive in using FOIA to get information, as well as, as you uh, referenced, Nico, being a publishing partner with people like uh, Snowden on whistleblower information and the ability of getting information out into the public square. And so our feeling was that the kind of often conventional wisdom about lawyers is that they're the people that say no, you know, and that stop things from happening, right? Oh, I know, I know. (laughs) And and that David was such a exemplary representative of a lawyer who is there in support of the mission of the organization, which is to cover what is important and to facilitate that you know, within the bounds of the law. In other words, we do have libel laws. We do have, you know, um, national security legitimate concerns. And so there is a navigation that's necessary. And the judges and I just felt that um, his book, which is also very readable, and it's always interesting to me when someone who's a subject expert also turns out to be, you know, a good writer, um, is just a telling of those stories in a way that, in addition to being revealing about the battles that arguably our paper of record has continued to face, also I think helps to the point you were making about the social media companies, maybe explain for the layperson the scrupulousness of the processes that mm-hmm. reporters and editors and fact checkers and publishers go through before they publish which doesn't mean that they don't make mistakes. Of course they do. They're human. 
but they're also quick to correct those mistakes. And that process, which is the process that should give those of us who are readers confidence in what we're reading, is really essential. And in the decline of journalists' jobs, of local newspapers, of investigative reporting resources, should trouble all of us because as a complement to our own individual rights of free speech, we are so dependent on a free press to hold elected officials and our government agencies accountable to us. You know, we can't ourselves go find out what the local school board is doing or what the FDA is doing. And so we felt that for all of those reasons, David was a worthy um, recipient. I think the question you raise about, you know, how best and who should regulate the tech companies is a related but not entirely the same question because they have, of course, consistently argued that they are not publishers, that they are platforms. And yet I think it's been demonstrated most powerfully recently in the documentary, The Social Dilemma, that the very algorithms that are at the core of their business model have a very specific impact on what kind of content is served up. And so I'm not smart enough or knowledgeable enough to know what the solution is, but I am of a view that we have yet to figure out what is the right regulatory framework for those platforms. And I am not so inclined to think that the best solution to your point is going to be to let them decide. Yeah. I remember back in 2011, around the Arab Spring, everyone thought these platforms were the great democratizer. There was nothing that they could do wrong, that they gave a voice to the people. And and to a certain extent, they do. But as we saw in the election of 2016 and the disinformation attempts uh, that were attempted by uh, foreign governments and continue to be attempted by foreign governments, there are some there are some um, things about the platforms that are cause for concern and that I will hopefully get a, uh, a subject matter expert onto the show to discuss in the coming weeks and months. Speaking of journalism, there's also Omar Jimenez, who is receiving your award, of course, in journalism. And I think there are mo- many of our listeners will recall that in the wake of the George Floyd protests or during the George Floyd protests, while uh, Omar was covering them, he was arrested on camera and he he had this very calm and professional demeanor about him as he was being arrested. He continued to report. Yes. So it, it seems like a very natural recipient for that journalism award. I'm sorry? You're under arrest. Okay. Do you mind telling me why I'm under arrest, sir? Why, well, I mean, why it I was just arrest? professional grace under pressure. And the fact that it was the clear intersection of racial justice, in this case, racial profiling, and the right of the press to do their job made it a pretty compelling example of something, again, that is very relevant in today's environment that this individual's experience could bring alive. On the arts and entertainment front, another documentary, uh, and this is the last category that I think we haven't covered yet, uh, Immigration Nation, the filmmakers uh, there, Shaul Schwartz and Christina, and I'm going to mispronounce her last name, Clouseau, they had their film, uh, there were attempts by the U.S. government to censor it. I'm not familiar with the, f- the film, but I'd love to hear more about that. Yes, it's very powerful. And I think that it's, um, I think Netflix is launching it next week. It's very soon. So I. Yeah, it, it says they were delayed until after the election in part to the censorship attempts. Well, no, that's what they push back on. 
So it is it is going uh, live before that. And, um, oh, okay. Your your listeners should check with Netflix. I obviously <laughs> was sent a, a a link, as were the judges, in order to be able to consider it. But it's an extraordinary piece of documentary filmmaking. It's it's six one hour episodes, and as as your listeners will see, now one would say curiously, given how it turned out. But nevertheless, you know, roughly four years ago. Um, ICE decided that as they were pursuing these new, more aggressive policies regarding uh, detention, regarding the remain in Mexico, regarding the separation of children, all of these policies under this administration, that they had a story to tell and they wanted that story to be told. And so they granted unprecedented access to these filmmakers for a period that it was over three years, and they followed in different places the stories of individual immigrants, the stories at different border crossings, the stories back in the countries of origin that people were fleeing, uh, the stories of raids, and have put it together in this, as I say, six-hour uh, documentary. So just as a piece of documentary filmmaking, and I happen to have a soft spot for the power of strong documentaries to really open our eyes to worlds that we might not otherwise really understand and to move us, it would be noteworthy. But what made it really deserving of one of our awards was that the agreement they had with the government was that they would show it to the government officials before it was finalized. And the government would have a chance to say, well, that's just factually wrong. You know, you say we have X number of detention centers and we have Y number or whatever the specifics are, which is not unusual. I mean, journalists will do that too. They will say, we will let you, you know, offer feedback on fact checking. Well, the government had no corrections on the facts, but were, to be blunt about it, horrified by how really horrifying the picture of what the impact and the work of ICE is in today's world. And they said, we don't want this to be seen. And we're going to figure out a way to stop you. And the filmmaker said, well, we don't really think you can do that. And they said, well, we think we can make it pretty unpleasant for you. And we're willing to let you go forward with it if you'll agree to wait until after the election to air it. Oh, of course. Yeah, of right? Course. Are, we, are we not surprised? <laughs> and the filmmakers said no. And they held their ground. And um, the consequence is that it is now going to be viewable uh, between now and the election. So we were very impressed by their willingness to take that stand and then to do it around an issue that is, again, one of the seminal issues in our country today, that having a robust debate about analyzing rigorously what is going on so that we can have a discussion about what are the policies we as a nation want to pursue seems so essential. And that film is Immigrant Nation. And as Christy said, check in with Netflix to see when it's out. And hopefully it'll be out before the election. Well, Christy, this year's awards, uh, again, on this coming Monday, October 19th, are virtual. So we are not limited by seating capacity. Can our listeners attend if they'd like? Absolutely. So the easiest way to do it is just to go to our website, which is hmhfoundation.org. And then you'll see... Uh, There'll be a link there on the homepage 
or, or the awards page, and you can just click on that to register for it. The awards will be, um, as you say, Nico, virtual, and it will be at 6 to 7 Eastern time on Monday. One hour, mercifully. You know, I often go to these award shows and uh, attend in person, and they, they can be hours and hours long. So um, I'm, I'm looking forward to attending on Monday. And I, I really appreciate all you've done with the awards over these 40 years. One of the things that you do that a lot of other awards, not just in the First Amendment context, but elsewhere do, is they, they give the awards to the famous people, people that will help with fundraising, people who you know might only tangentially be related to the issue at hand. Uh, but you're really focused on giving the awards to the people that do the work and to go, going above and beyond. And as you said, uh, very nice, who who don't just do this professionally, but also have a personal stake uh, outside of their professional lives and do it uh, on principle. So I appreciate all you've done for the awards, Christy, all you've done to recognize the important work of people uh, on behalf of the First Amendment. And I thank you as well for coming on to So to Speak. It was an absolute pleasure, Nico. Thank you. That was Christy Hefner, founder and chairman of the Hugh M. Hefner First Amendment Awards, which takes place this coming Monday, October 19th. To learn more about the awards and the awardees, you can visit hmhfoundation.com. And also to check out the new movie, which we've discussed, Mighty Ira, which I co-directed, and is about the life and career of former ACLU executive director Ira Glasser, who is, of course, receiving the Lifetime Achievement Award from the First Amendment Awards, you can visit Mighty Ira. This podcast is hosted, produced, and recorded by me, Nico Perino, and edited by my colleague, Aaron Reese. To learn more about So To Speak, you can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash freespeechtalk, and like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash podcast. We also take email feedback at sotospeak at thefire.org. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a review wherever you get your podcasts, including Apple Podcasts and Google Play. And until next time, thanks again for listening.